From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. We are in Genesis today, and I'm so glad that you've joined us. I just want to take a few minutes to talk about Genesis itself. Uh, I'm calling this whole Bible study the backstory to the beginning, and there's a reason why I'm doing that. And the reason is, is that if you were to talk to any Jewish person or even talk to Jesus and say, what is the most important uh, event of the Old Testament? Pretty much across the board, everybody would say that the most important event of the Old Testament is when uh, God rescued his, his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea and brought them into the promised land and gave that promised land to to his people. That is the story. And everything kind of from the Exodus on relates to that story. The story of King David, all the prophets, all the teachings, all the writings, the book of Ruth, everything in the Old Testament is kind of centered around this story of the Exodus. But there's a few stories that happens before the Exodus, and those are all contained in the book of Genesis. And so Genesis is the backstory to really which is the beginning narrative, which is that Exodus, the, the, the story about God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And who did that? Well, obviously it was God, but he worked through a man. And the man that he worked through was the man Moses. And so Moses is probably, I would say, the central character of the Old Testament. Uh, I think everything leading up to the Exodus of Moses is kind of preparing the seed and the soil for Moses. And then everything in the Old Testament afterwards looks back to Moses. Moses is considered the greatest prophet. As a matter of fact, I think uh, in a lot of major religions like Islam, uh, Uh, Hebrew, Christianity, he's considered to be a major, 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 major prophet or a major, major key character of the Old Testament. Moses is the guy. And there's there's reasons to look at Moses as the guy. I mean, first of all, uh, he is Hebrew, right? He was born a Hebrew, uh, but he was rescued and sent down the Nile River where he was picked up by the by the people in Pharaoh's household. And so he was adopted into Pharaoh's household. He was an adopted child. But as a person in Pharaoh's household, he learned so much about um, the Egyptian culture, uh, which at that, t- at that time, at the time of Moses, I mean, was the, um, you know, the premier culture of the Middle East, right? They were doing things that nobody else was doing. They were so organized and they had writings and they had the ability to write and read and do all sorts of things. And so Moses grew up in that culture. He learned how to read. He learned how to write. He learned how to manage uh, things as a member of Pharaoh's court, uh, kind of an adopted son in Pharaoh's court. I mean, he had everything going for him. When you think about it, what a great crossover character, right? First of all, he's fully Hebrew uh, by birth and by and by culture and by skin color and by everything. He was definitely Hebrew, but he was growing up in Pharaoh's court, and so he was fully Egyptian. He's this, he's this unique set of conditions that created a person who was able to do everything that God wanted him to do. Uh, if you look at the life of Moses, God just did an amazing thing by 
creating this set of circumstances that created this guy called Moses, who was then able to do what God called him to do, which was to rescue his people out of the promised land. So uh, this whole story of Genesis then really is leading up to Moses and the Exodus. But there's, but there's another thing, and that is that the whole entire narrative of Genesis, so from Exodus on, Moses writes uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then different authors write contemporaneously the stories of the Old Testament, but not Genesis. Genesis is a look back. It's the backstory. Moses writes the book of Genesis, but Moses writes the book of Genesis from his current life looking backwards and hearing these stories from his fellow Hebrew uh, people about creation, about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Lot and Noah and all these different people of the Old Testament that we see in Genesis, those were all oral stories that were passed down along in the tradition of the Hebrew faith that eventually came to Moses. And Moses realized the importance of these stories, and so he documented them in this book called Genesis. And it is basically those stories that form and shape the Hebrew people. Uh, some of you may know that I am a uh, board member. I actually do a lot of work with the Vail Preservation Society. Um, and the reason why I'm so enthralled with the Vail Preservation Society is I love history. As a, as a student of Christianity, uh, I love Christian history. But as a student of the world, I love world history. And as a member and a citizen of Vail here, I love Vail history. And um, the, the, you know, the fascinating thing, just a really quick sidebar about Vail history, is that uh, if you were to go to Tombstone, Arizona, what have they done? They have documented all the stories about the history of what happened in Tombstone. There's not a lot of stuff that happened in Tombstone, my folks. There's one gunfight at the OK Corral, and that's about it, right? And yet Tombstone becomes this, this because there's one gunfight gun in this location called uh, Boot Hill, people from around the world flock to Tombstone, Arizona to see you know, Boot Hill and all that and the courthouse. And, and you walk into Tombstone, literally, you walk into Tombstone, you say, this is it. <laughs> This is all they got, but that's all they have, right? I mean, they got one story. But Vail, oh my goodness, Vail has tremendous numbers of story. We And, and the Vail Preservation Society has documented a lot of these stories. Of course, my favorite story about Vail is the story about the bank robbery that happened on the train track that I can see from my window right here. Sometimes the Amtrak goes by, I see that train track. It's the old, original 1880s train track right there outside my, my window. And um, there was a train robbery, apparently, like right outside my window. And the guy who got away with the gold left, went down into Pantana Creek, came back up and went and holed himself up in a Colossal Cave. And the story goes, I don't, shouldn't, all right, I'll just finish the story. The story goes that they called the sheriff in, the sheriff came in, tried to smoke him out, but there was a back entrance to the cave. They ended up in... Oh, where did they end up? Maybe Wilcox, Arizona, Douglas? I can't remember. Anyway, ended, ended up somewhere over to the east part of Arizona, uh, but they never found all the gold. So, I mean, that not that more of an interesting story than Tombstone, for crying out loud, that there was this major uh, train robbery and that there's gold sitting around that if somebody 
you know, would go and find the gold, they'd be a millionaire. It's, you know, million dollars of gold back then. It's probably billions of dollars of gold today. Uh, that to me is, an, is just a very exciting story. And it all happened here at Colossal Cave in Vail, Arizona, which I think is pretty cool. Actually, there's a movie uh, that just came out in the last year or two. It's called, um, I think, The Legend of Five Mile Cave. Uh, and it's available for rent on Amazon. And it's a cheesy movie, right, with, uh, with B-grade actors. Uh, but it is a fun story. And it kind of conflates a lot of things about Tucson, but but Five Mile Cave is basically, right, Colossal Cave. I'm, I'm just telling you that. So uh, if you're looking for a fun movie to watch this week and you haven't seen it yet, watch The Legend of Five Mile Cave. Uh, and then next time you see me, you can punch me in the arm or say, why did you make me watch that movie? But it is, it's a fun movie. Highly recommend it. Anyway, so, uh, but that provides the narrative and the history here of the Vale area. Well, Genesis provides the, the narrative and the history of the people of Israel, right? If they're gonna be rescued from slavery in Egypt, you have to ask yourself, what's so special about these people? Why, why these people and why slavery out of Egypt and why did God choose them and who are they and, and how did they become the people of God and what's that story and what does it look like? And Moses said, well, I'll tell you the story and I'll tell you the story by giving you all these different narratives that were passed along to me I've written them all down and now you're gonna have them so you'll understand the backstory of this Exodus. And so that's the stories that we're going through. Now, obviously the creation story, we just finished Genesis 1, 2, the fall of man in Genesis 3. I didn't really talk about it very much, but all of those, uh, a lot of the, the floods, you know, the creation stories and the flood stories are found in very, very many different cultures throughout the world. As a matter of fact, a lot of cultures have a flood story. A lot of cultures have the creation story. And they all kind of fall in line a lot with Genesis 1, 2. Uh, and, and we'll see when we get into the flood. Um, and so that isn't surprising. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, you know, archaeologists say, well, you know, it's interesting. They all had the same, you know, story about how it was created in seven days and all that. But it's like, well, but if it, was, if it all came from one seven-day creation, if... if if the cradle of civilization is actually in Baghdad, Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates, right? Wouldn't it make sense then that all of the all of the stories of creation kind of are similar because they all kind of came from the same source? That's the way I look at it. Anyway, so, but now we're going to get into the stories of Genesis. I bring all of that up to tell you this, and that is um, from now on for the rest of Genesis, we're telling stories about the people of Israel. And we're, we're kind of laying a patchwork quilt of why God called them and who they are and what shapes them. And all of these stories have a purpose. All of these stories teach us a deeper lesson. And we, we can simply go through the stories and we could gloss over, but since we have time through this pandemic and maybe even beyond, I'd really like to spend some time on why Moses felt it was important to include these stories into the book of Genesis. Like, what are the lessons we can draw from these stories? And are they important for us today? And if they are important for us today, what are the lessons from those? And so, as we move forward in Exodus, that's really what I'm going to focus on. Um, we'll tell the stories, and then we'll look at different aspects of the story and say, hmm, why, why did Moses put that in there? So, 
that's what we're going to do from now on into the end of the book of uh, book of Genesis. And so um, we're basically going to get started now by looking at Genesis chapter four. We're going to start in verse one. All right. So Genesis verse four, chapter one, and we get into the story of Cain and Abel. Verse one, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So a couple things here uh, from Genesis 4. First of all, uh, right off the bat, Adam made love to his wife Eve. I mean, that's pretty clear as clear can be, right? And she became pregnant, pregnant and gave birth to Cain. What's interesting is the old King James version of the Bible um, they were a little bit more prudish back when they wrote the King James Version of the Bible, so they didn't say they made love. Uh, it's Adam knew his wife, Eve. Um, and actually, that comes from the Hebrew because the word here in Hebrew actually is yada, Y-A-D-A, yada. And it means to know, it's to understand, to conceive, to perceive. Uh, and so that's how Moses puts this in the text. He says, Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And uh, so if you ever hear anybody say, I um, knew my wife in a biblical sense, or I knew that person in a biblical sense, or an, I knew that my wife in, a old, in a Genesis 4 sense, right? Then um, that basically means that there is this consummation of a man and wife uh, and they're basically... Uh, producing offspring, and she became pregnant. And uh, there have been a lot of commentators uh, that I've heard over the years that talk about how uh, this this whole act of conceiving children and the whole idea of the Old Testament knowing means that it just goes beyond the simple act of doing this to become pregnant, right? That there's a sense of Adam, and that Adam is deeply intimately familiar with his wife, there's more than just this passive connection, right? That it is a deep understanding connection between man and wife, that it's a knowing connection, that it's, um, and you could even, you could even talk about this in marriage counseling, right? That it's, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the act itself, but there's a deep coming together of two people and a deep sharing of understanding of who each one is, right? That Adam isn't just seeing Eve uh, and being, you know, uh, and seeing her beauty or whatever, but that Adam at a very deep level understands Eve. He cares for Eve. He uh, maybe listens to Eve. Maybe Eve at the end of the day hasn't used up all her words. And so Adam comes in from the field and she talks and Adam sits there and listens, right? And uh, until she uses up all her words. That's something that we say in our family. Um, because if the research shows that men speak less than women, right? And so uh, this, this came together so perfectly. When we were at seminary, we were driving the kids to school, to high school. And there was a guy in the car and he lived in the seminary housing complex with us. 
And he would come in and say, how, how are you doing today? And he'd go, hey. That's all he'd say the whole day. Hey. That's all he had. Because that's all the words he had, right? He's a young kid, you know, he's 15, 16 years old. Uh, but, you know, girls, I know this is stereotypical and I'm sorry about this, but the girls that we had in our car could talk forever. I mean, and so we have in our family, uh, but the research actually bears this out. So don't just blame me. This, there's research that shows that for whatever reason, the female of the species on average talk more than the male of the species. And um, this is borne out in research. That doesn't mean that there aren't some males that like to talk a lot. At the end of the day, they haven't used up all their words. And there's some, it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't some females that talk very little. I mean, we're just different people. But on average, guys talk less than women. So, um, so where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, Eve you know, sits down with Adam and Eve tells about her day. And it, and it, and she you know, uses up all her words. And Adam uses up all those words. At the end of the day, Adam uses up all his words. They understand each other and they go inside and create children. All right. So there you go. All right. So. Um, anyway, so the, the lesson in that is, uh, you know, in a marriage, know your, know your spouse, right? Um, it's not just, um, coming together two people. It's a knowing that happens, uh, know your spouse, uh, in the biblical sense, right? All right. So Adam made love, knew his wife Eve. She became pregnant and they gave birth to Cain. Cain is the oldest son. And then with the help of the Lord, she brought forth the man. Then she knew Adam again, and they gave birth to another brother. His name is Abel. Now, we know that Abel kept flocks. So Abel is a rancher. And Cain worked the soil. So he's a farmer. So any of you have said, you know, who've heard that the oldest profession, you know, mankind is, you know, the ladies of the evening or whatever, that's not true, right? The oldest profession in the Bible is basically ranching and farming. Those are the two oldest professions. And Abel was a rancher and Cain was a farmer. And uh, here in Vail, we had ranching and farming. And we had some big ranches and we had some huge, wonderful ranches that we tell stories about and we should, that are much more interesting than Tombstone, Arizona. Anyway, so in the course of time, Cain, who was a farmer, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, the rancher, also brought an offering. He brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on the rancher and his offering, but on Cain and the farmer and his offering, he did not look with favor. So the farmer was angry and his face was downcast. Now, the big question you have to ask yourself is why was God pleased with the one offering uh, and not pleased with the other offering? And there have been books and books and stories and sermons and research and everything talking about why it is that God was pleased with, uh, with Abel and his fat portions, but not pleased with Cain and his. So just real quickly, let's look at the scripture and see what it says here, because there's not a lot of detail here, right? It says, uh, he brought fat portions. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But Cain is offering to not look favors. Is there anything else here in the story? Well, oh yeah, here we go. How about this? Abel brought an offering, which was fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Hmm. So maybe there's something here that it's because uh, Abel brought 
kind of the premier choice of his flock. And Cain just simply went out into the garden, picked anything, and brought it to God. I mean, when I read it with just out anything else in Scripture, that's what I see in this story, is that uh, Abel looked at all of his flocks and he said, this is my perfect flock. This is my perfect sheep, right? And this is the one that I'm going to offer to God. And then Cain just went out into his, you know, and he picked the first ear of corn that he found. And he said, yeah, this is the one. He goes and offers it to God. To me, that is the most simple reading of this story that I can see. And if that's the case, the lesson for this is that we should offer to God our first fruits. We should offer to God our firstborn, not, you know, our firstborn children, although there's later talks about that too in scripture. Um, But that God deserves our best and our finest. And and this story kind of highlights that, that God deserves our best and our our finest. Now, remember, who's writing this story? It's Moses. And Moses receives commands from God later on Mount Sinai. And what's the first command? And the first command is honor, honor, you know, have no other gods before me. In other words, put God first in your life. And that is not original with the Ten Commandments. It's actually original here back with the story of Cain and Abel, right? That that in order for us to live the best life that God has for us, we should give the best we have to God first. That's kind of what I read from the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Because you have to understand that my understanding of the Old Testament, all the laws of the Old Testament, all the stories that are going to come out of Genesis, everything in the Old Testament is a handbook to tell us as humans who are created in the image of God how we can live our life, the best life that God wants us to live, right? In other words, how do we understand the human condition to such a level that, that we are living the life that God would be very pleased for us to live uh, and that we would be, we would be I don't want to say happy because happy isn't the, isn't the right word, but complete maybe, or that given the circumstances that we personally are going to live in, in our life, given all of those circumstances, all the troubles, all the trials, all the stress, and the, you know, if we go back to the handbook and say, okay, how should we get through this? What is, what are the, some of the things that we should do because we live in the hand, in the human condition that's going to make our life better? Those are the laws of the Old Testament, and that's what the stories in Genesis point out. And to me, this Genesis story points out that we should give our first fruits to God. Now, you say to yourself, but why? It doesn't make any sense. Why does God need anything? He created the universe. He has all the resources and the power uh, at his fingertips. What in the world does he need any of this stuff is? And the answer is he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. You're right. He could create anything that he needs. He could speak and corn would exist. He could speak and goats would exist. He could speak and rain can fall. He could speak and do anything that he wants. He's God. So he doesn't need it. So why do it? And the answer is because we need it. We need the opportunity to give thanks back to God for all the many blessings that he's given us in our life. And he deserves the first fruits of those things, right? It has nothing to do with God needing it. It has everything to do with us as human beings needing to do it. I know it sounds strange. You're like, why? 
Why do we need to give up some of the portions of what we've been given and give it to God? That doesn't make any sense. No, no, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make complete, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, if you talk to people who have never done this, right? People in, uh, in your community or in your world or people that you work with or people that you go to school with or people that have no background in this kind of stuff, you know, people who are trying to gain as much power and wealth and influence in it, you know, and it's all me-centered, right? If you talk to those people and say, yeah, um, I give a portion of what God's given me and I give it back to God. And they look at you like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Why would you do that? I mean, you would actually choose, you know, giving stuff away to other people as opposed to, to you know, benefiting your own life and you know, where you're going to live or what car you're going to drive or how, you know, what food you're going to eat or where you're going to vacation, all that stuff. And you say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I wouldn't think of doing it any differently. And the reason is, is because if you've ever talked to anybody, and I mean across the board, ever talked to anybody who lives by these first fruits principles that understand that life is a gift, that all the blessings of God is a gift, that everything they have is a gift from God, and then they therefore turn around and give a portion of the first fruits of those gifts that God has given them and they give them away. The, the completeness, the wholeness, the joy, um, the, the, the ability to understand at the deeper level the blessings of God. I mean, all of this stuff happens in our life when we give a portion of what God has, when we give that um, away, uh, in service of God, uh, in service to his kingdom, um, there, is a, there is a deep joy. Uh, and I mean a joy at a very, very deep level that comes over your life, that you understand things so much deeper. I think you live, I think you live a more joyful life. I think you live a more complete life. You live a fuller life. You live a more blessed life. All of these things happen when you understand this. Um, and Abel understood this, right? He went to his flocks and he found the best sheep or whatever it was he was flocking, right? And he offered that to God as a first fruit. Uh, and Cain, he wasn't so well about it, right? He just did it. Um, and so the there was blessing there because he gave back to God, but he didn't give back like, the ultimate to God. He didn't give the first fruits to God. And I think that's why God was a little bit disappointed with Cain. He wasn't going to kick Cain out, right? He wasn't, Cain wasn't one that was going to be kicked out of the kingdom. I mean, Cain was still, uh, you know, a beloved child of Adam and Eve and had a brother and a family and, you know, loved by God and all those things. But because he didn't do it, because it didn't give the first fruits, it was Cain who felt depressed. It wasn't God. I mean, go back and look at Scripture uh, right here. Um, the Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering, but on Cain, his offering did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, and Cain's face was downcast. These are all emotions that Cain had, right? Uh, it had nothing to do with Adam and Eve. It had nothing to do with Abel. It really doesn't have anything to do with God, right? God just like, you didn't give me your first fruits. So, um I'm not looking on favor with this offering as I am with Abel. And so Cain feels angry, he feels dejected, he feels downcast, and we'll see this is the this is the beginning of another sin that enters in into his life. Because he didn't 
do what he probably knew in his heart that he should do, which is to give his first fruits, you know, first, the first fruits to God. Now it impacts him. And now kind of this anger and resentment is living in his life and it's festering, right? It's down in his stomach and it's festering. He looks at his brother and every time he looks at his brother's flock, he's like, yeah, God likes that, but he doesn't like mine. And, the, and we begin to get this seed of dissension. Of course, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst on the seams to a, in a horrible way. There's no, no question about it. Um, so uh, that's how I read this story of Genesis. This, this, the re, you know, why God was favor, you know, liked the livestock and he didn't like the fruits. Why he liked uh, Cain and not, or why he liked Abel and not Cain. But uh, in further scriptures, we go down, you know, read later on in scripture, other biblical authors point back to the stories for other lessons. One of them is the author to the book of Hebrews, and this is what he says. Um, this is Hebrews 11, verse 4. He says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So the writer to the book of Hebrews ties it all into faith, and, and as well it should be to tie it into faith, right? Because it takes faith to give any, it takes faith to follow the commands of God, right? Some of the commands of God are difficult, some of the commands of God don't make any sense. Yeah, give a portion of your stuff to God. None of that makes sense. If you have no faith in God that he is going to turn around and take those offerings and basically make our existence better, make the kingdom better, if you don't have that understanding, if you don't have that faith, uh, then you would never do these types of things. But all of these things require faith. Talk to anybody who... Uh, gives a portion of their income, right? Or a portion of their time or their talent or treasure, whatever. Gives stuff back to in support of the kingdom. That takes faith, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. The world looks at it and they say, that's dumb. Why would you do that? But it, So it takes, at some level, it takes faith to step out in faith and say, I'm going to do it. But those people who step out in faith and do it, then they understand the blessings. And I'm not talking about just monetary blessings. I'm talking about giving back to God, you know, what he's given you. Understanding that at a deeper level, that all you have in this life is a blessing from God. And the way to seal that in your, in your life is to give a portion of it back as a blessing to God. Serve God. Live for God. Do the things for the kingdom. And when you do that, my goodness, the understanding of the kingdom of God and grace and who he is and all of this starts to flood into your life. And it's like, oh... Now I understand. Now it is clearer. Now it makes sense. You see, Abel understood that. He gave his first fruit to God. So at a deeper level, Abel, Abel understood that. Cain didn't. And at a deeper level, he understands too now about it. Because life is harsh and cruel. And um, these lessons come whether or not you have faith or not. Whether or not you follow God with your first fruits or not. You know, the lesson, the life moves on. Uh, it's just, do you want to move on in the joy of the kingdom and the joy of understanding all that stuff? Or do you not want to? And the only way you're going to understand it is to step out in faith and do it. And when you do, and you see the blessings in your life that happen because of it, then it comes down to a deeper level. That's what the writer to Hebrew says. 
Um, John also writes it. This is what he says. This is John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. He says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised by brothers and sisters if the world hates you. Um, so John, John takes it in a little bit of a different area. He says, when you do the things, when you step out in faith and do the things that God's called you to do, the world may actually hate you for doing that, right? The world may, you say, why would the world hate me for loving the world? Trust me. We talked about this last night in our devotion at the, at the, at the prayer, prayer service last night. Um, the world doesn't like grace. The world doesn't understand grace. The world doesn't understand love at a deep level. Uh, the world's afraid of love. And when they see love, they, they get very afraid of it. That's what John's pointing out. He says, uh, he uses the story of Cain and Abel to talk about love. So there are other various offers. There's even more, but I just want to point out these two. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel has lots of stories. But at its most deepest level, for me, the story of Cain and Abel is when you give to God, just give him your best. To the best of your ability, give him your best. Um, don't let not giving your best end up festering in your life. Because when you see other people in this world who do give their best to God and God just seems to bless them and they live in the joy of the Lord and it's like nothing seems to get them. Uh, you know, they're, they're men and women of God who just, you know, I love God. I'm sure you people, I just love God. I just love Jesus. I just love him, you know. And the world looks at that and they're so envious of it, right? It's like, how can you live like that? It's just like, well, it's just I do, right? I just follow God. I have faith and I love God. And so the world will hate you. And that's what the story of what, that's what John's pointing out by this. So we're not done with the story yet of Cain and Abel. I'm sorry I've gone late again today. I was going to try to keep these to 30 minutes, but 36 isn't too bad. Uh, tomorrow we'll continue again in verse 6 because Cain and Abel now have this rivalry and it doesn't end well for either one of them. Uh, and so we'll get in that tomorrow. But why don't we just close in prayer? Gracious God, uh, the lesson I take away from this is that you want our best. And so Lord, uh, help us to give our best. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your love and your grace because Lord, we can't give you our best. By any stretch of the imagination, we can't give you our best. We don't even know what our best is. But because the Holy Spirit lives in our life and helps us fight the battles, whatever we give you, Lord, he takes it and he makes it really good for you. And for that, we thank and praise you. Watch over us for the rest of the day and bring us back again safely tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.